Good morning. I mentioned this in first service, and I'd like to mention it again, is that I hope we never uh, take for granted corporate worship together. Uh, And being able to sing praises to our Lord and Savior, being able to proclaim his word boldly, being able to fellowship with one another, it is a joy to be able to do that. And uh, this morning that just stirred my heart, and so I want to thank the praise team for leading uh, in our worship through song. Well, this morning we're going to be going through Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, and my comment to the first service was, this is, I feel like it's four messages all crammed into one, so I asked them to be polite to you when you came in just to create space, uh, and then we'll be done by four, Uh, and so, but as you know, they weren't in here and I wasn't going, so that's kind of given away. Uh, through this, but it is uh, an encouraging passage to be able to read through, to be able to study, and it is a joy to be able to do that today. And before I read this passage, it is this is one that has been personally challenging to me again and again and again. Uh, and so it's one that I have enjoyed, and I really, my prayer is that it is an encouragement and a challenge to you also. And as I think of the passage, I think of my response almost possibly being the, that of the response of the church at the time of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and to give a little background to that, uh, Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5 had sold some property because they wanted to provide for the other believers that had less money than they did. And so they're, they're selling so they can care for one another at this time of the early church. Uh, and so they had seen this done and thought, hey, that's a good idea. We should do that too. So they go and sell a portion of their property. And in their minds, they're thinking, we want to keep some of this for us, but we want them to think we gave it all. So we'll just tell them that we're selling it for the price that we're giving them while keeping it a secret that this is for us. And so they do that. And as they bring it to the church leaders, Ananias first is questioned and saying, is this this all that you sold it for? And he's like, yep, that's all it is. Now, let me remind you, no one said they had to sell their property and give money. No one said that they had to give all of the money. They could have given the portion and just said, yes, that's what we're giving. But in their minds, they said, we want to say that it's all and keep back some of it. And so they, the church leaders came and said, you're, you're deceiving the spirit. You're trying to. And it was at that point that Ananias dropped down dead. So some people take his body, go, and they bury it right then. A few hours later, Sapphira, his wife, comes in. And they give her the same line of questioning. And say, yeah, is, is this how much you sold the property for? And she said, yep, that's exactly what it is. So she was keeping in line with the family lie. And the same exact thing happened to her. Just as the people that walked in that had finished burying her husband, she dropped down dead and they brought her out and buried her also. At the end of the passage, it says that the believers had great fear. Great fear as they saw what just took place. That was kind of a wake-up call for the church to say, this is the real deal. This is important. This isn't something to mess around with. We are coming before a holy God, and he calls us to certain standards, and this is serious and important. 
this passage for me has kind of been that same type of almost slap in the face and saying, this being a follower of Christ is serious business and important. God calls us to a high standard. It's a high calling to be one of his children. So I want to look through some of this and if you look through, it's like little mini phrases that are challenges or directives or instructions. We don't have time to go through every single one of them. So I've broken them up into a couple different categories, and we're going to highlight a few of them. That's why I said it's kind of like those four sermons put into one. Uh, we could do more justice to that, but I want to give some highlights to some of the, the ones that stand out a little bit more to me and share them with you this morning. And so the, the four sections... I want to let you know those before I get into it that we're going to be breaking this down to. The first one is our response as believers. What is our response as believers? What is God calling us to? The second one is our response to the body of Christ. How are we supposed to relate to one another? What is God calling us to there? The third one is our response to all people. Going beyond this body of believers, how are we supposed to respond to everybody? And then the fourth and most challenging one is our response to enemies. What does God call us to do to those that we, or maybe even the world, would consider our enemies? How are we, as believers, supposed to respond to them? Let's go ahead and read Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. I'm going to read it in its entirety now, and then we'll kind of review different parts and pieces as we come back to our different sections. So Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And it says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, we are very thankful for your words. We are very thankful that you chose to share with us your heart. You had men write it down you have had it preserved to this day, and it will be preserved 
to the coming of your son. We thank, are thankful that you have shared it with us. And God, my prayer this morning is that we would be encouraged by your words in areas that we see you working in our lives. And God, we would also be challenged by your words as we look and see areas that need work by your spirit in our lives. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to proclaim your word boldly this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first section that we want to look at is our response as believers. And this section is really contained in verse 9. Verse 9 is a summary of the passage. And so it's got a lot of things where it says, think about these things. And as you think about these, let the rest of the instructions flow through verse 9. Kind of let it be a lens for us. Now, the first, three, the first verse is three simple phrases. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, I don't think we should be surprised that Paul starts this off with the idea of love. Love is a common theme that we see throughout Scripture, both old and new. And we know it's because of God's love for us that Christ was put on the cross we know that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we often call the love chapter, is written and Paul concludes that chapter where it describes love with a challenge to have three qualities, faith, hope, and love. And then he goes on to say, but the greatest of these is love. So he emphasizes love there. John also mentions love as he talks in John eleven thirty five, 35, that all men will know that we are his disciples based on our love for one another within the body. And we'll come back to that verse in a little bit. But, that, but love is to be the marker for the world to know that we are his followers. We can also look at the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second greatest commandment that's closely paired with that is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this idea and theme of love is significant and huge. And so we see Paul starting that off. These uh, marks of a Christian, as your Bible may have it marked out, is let love be genuine. Now what's interesting about this passage right here is that uh, Paul isn't saying you need to love. But rather he's saying let your love be genuine. There's an assumption that love is already there. Love is taking place, but he says this needs to be genuine. Don't let it be surface. It needs to be real. It needs to be felt. And I think of a, a little, a simple, a simplistic difference for this would be if we see one another in the hallway on Sunday morning, walk into the hallway, coming in, and we say, hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? And then you go on. Are we really investigating in each other's lives? No, that's a general pleasantry that we give, and so it's kind of cultural that you're just checking in. It's, it's kind of like saying hi. But what's the difference is if you do that, and you're coming and saying, how are you doing? And someone says, good, how are you doing? I'm like, no, 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 how are you really doing? Didn't I hear, or didn't you tell me last week that your kids are going through whatever hardship or struggle? How is that doing? How are you managing your finances? Because I know you just got laid off. Are, is, is, are there needs that you have that I can, as the body of Christ, help fill? Let love be genuine. That love being felt. 
that love being real. It's not being surface, but we're actually investing in each other's lives. Let love be genuine. Let's not have it be superficial. That is what, as a believer, we are to be characterized by. Genuine love. Caring for each other. Genuine love to the outside world. How are we supposed to act and live as believers, as followers of Christ? With genuine love. Now we go on to the second two phrases there. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Pretty obviously, those are opposites. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. If we were to take a look at the language that, I mean, is translated, at least in my version, as abhor, that is a very strong word. It's saying extreme, like intense hatred for. So we need to have intense hatred for evil. So far, it's like we can't even get close. It's like two strong magnets, but you put them like on the opposite where you can't even get close to it even if you wanted to because there's no desire to be close to what is evil. No desire to, to even entertain it in any way. And on the other side, it says hold fast to what is good. And that is the idea of clinging. And if you were to look at the language, that's also very strong. It's getting that idea of how marriage is designed to be where a husband and wife are made one flesh. It's not supposed to be separated. It's not to, you're supposed to be intertwined and it's inseparable. That's how we're supposed to be towards good. You're supposed to be staying so far away from evil and be so clinging to good that it's just it's intertwined with who you are. How are we supposed to respond as believers? Love genuinely. Be so far away from evil that it's not even associated with you and be so close to what is good that you can't get away from it. None of these are really earth-shattering truths, but a lot of times they're so hard for us to follow. That's where we find difficulty coming in again and again. So let's look and say, if we were to take a moment and say, how did we do this past week? Look from God's eyes and God's standards, or maybe we even take another level. A lot of you were with family. What if we interviewed your family members and said, hey, how, how did they do in the area of loving? How did, how did they do in the area of, of staying away from what's evil and clinging to what is good? What would the response be? Would their opinion of our lives be one of, yes, they loved genuinely. It was wonderful to have them. Hating evil, they stayed away from that and clinging to good. I just wanted to be around them. You could go beyond that and say, hey, our neighbors, what do they think of us? Do we exhibit these things to them? Our coworkers, do they enjoy working around us because we care about them genuinely and we do good around them? So that's kind of the big picture. And I want that to kind of be a lens that we see the rest of these as we see Paul's instructions to these various groups. The first one being, our response to the body of Christ. So I want to read again verses 10 through 13 as we look at what are we called in this passage to have as our response to the body of Christ. And it says this, love one another with brotherly affection. 
Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, this very first phrase, we see the love theme coming up again. And so when Paul says, let me give a little bit more specific, let me pinpoint this for you a little bit, how this is supposed to look. When he says we're supposed to have brotherly love. We're supposed to love one another with that brotherly love. And I can't overstate how important love within the body is biblically. We mentioned that passage earlier, John 13, 35. And I want to actually read it for you right now. It says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's what's supposed to set us apart from the rest of the world. As they see that we have such an intense love for one another, it just looks weird from what they're used to. We have care for one another. Many of you know that this past March, my little brother was admitted to the hospital at Ohio State University for uh, an unknown illness at that time. And Ohio State University is about an hour, a little over an hour from where uh, he lives and, and my parents live. Um, so it's not normal to go directly to Ohio State University Medical Center. Uh, and so you know something has to be bad. Uh, something's not good when you get sent directly to Ohio State. It kind of would be like U of M. And so you, if you get sent directly to U of M and they say, hey, bypass the local hospitals, just go there. You need to see some specialists. You need some people that can see this. You're like, okay, this, this is bigger than, uh, than the normal sickness. I still remember the phone call that my dad, uh, when he called me, I know exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing, exactly what I was feeling. When he called on the phone and he was pretty much in tears saying, you've got to pray for Justin. We're sending him to Ohio State right now, and we don't know what's wrong. We, all we know is his body is starting to fail. So that was huge, uh, and that was significant for me. And my brother ended up spending 117 consecutive days in three different hospitals. Uh, and so they eventually did diagnose him, but it was after quite a while because he was uh, diagnosed with something called Gambare syndrome, and they said, we've never seen it so bad. Uh, and they said, if he, did, if he wasn't on all these machines, his body would have passed away by now. Uh, and they said, we don't know how well he'll get better. And so we don't, it's not a guarantee that he will get better. Uh, and so that was extreme. I remember the first time I got to spend the night with him in one of the hospitals. He was getting transferred from Ohio State to one of the other hospitals. It was long care, long-term care ICU-type facility. And so they had nurses around the clock, and, uh, and his needs were, were so severe that they allowed family members during all the COVID stuff to stay with him 24-7. Uh, and so my parents have been with him a lot. And so I said, let me come give you guys a spell. You haven't had a night or a day together in, in weeks. So I went with him uh, when he was transferred and he was confused. He was hurting. He was on strong medication. He didn't know what was going on around him because he's in a whole new place. This whole time, his mind is completely working, but his body's not functioning. 
Within a week, he was completely paralyzed, no longer able to talk. When I was with him, he wasn't able to open his eyes. Uh, and so he was just laying there. He could shake his head a little bit. So his communication was, I would verbally read off the alphabet to get to the letter, and he would shake his head whenever I got to the letter that he wanted to spell in that phrase. Um, it was hard for me to see him that way. That first night that I was with him, neither of us slept. I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't take a nap beforehand. I was thought, I'm going to be in the hospital, just be with him. He needed something from me at least every 15 minutes. But most of the time, it was closer to five to seven. So every five to seven minutes, I'm getting up. His nervous system was done. It had been essentially destroyed by the syndrome. And so he was hot, cold, hurting, everything, this, that, and the other. And he, his, it, was, it was weird. But he needed something every five minutes. And so I went with him, and there were times where he was frustrated because he couldn't communicate what he needed. I wasn't understanding, or the drugs were, were messing with him where he couldn't communicate it well. Uh, and when you get to 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning and you're trying to remember the alphabet, I mean, I'd get stuck on D and be like, what letter is next? And so I was exhausted. But I made sure every time he needed something, after I finally figured out what it was and took care of it, I said, don't get frustrated. I want to know what you need. I am here for you. You can call me whenever you need me. I don't, I don't need to go sit down. I'm here for you. I didn't want him to feel like he was imposing on me. But I wanted him to know that anything he needed, I was there for because he was my brother. My little brother. Seeing him in that condition was hard. That was the biggest lesson God has ever taught me personally about what brotherly love is. That was the first and most significant, I mean, that was the most significant test that our family has ever been through to test and say, what does it look like to really love each other? To say, my needs are out the door, I don't care, I'm here for you, whatever you need, I want to be alongside you because we are family. My question for us is, do we have that type of brotherly love for one another where we are willing to invest whatever time is needed to help each other through whatever struggle we're going through in life, to invest in whatever finances we find that there's need, to invest in whatever emotional need as people are going through hard times? Are we investing in that true brotherly love? So I don't want to leave you hanging. And so my brother is out of the hospital. He's, he's with my parents. He's recovering. Uh, and so he is, I saw him yesterday, and we were, we'll get to this later in the passage, but we were weeping with those who wept. And so those of you that are sports fans know what I'm talking about, because you know where I stand as we weep with those who weep. And you can weep with me, and I will rejoice with you as you rejoice. Um, so we'll get that elephant out of the room if you know me. And so congratulations, and we'll move on. Um, <laughs> But I don't want to lose focus on the point. As we need to love one another like that. We need to invest in one another like that. Uh, and so as we, just like my brother, and seeing him recover, and seeing him still have a long way to go, I'm still there as his brother. 
as we see each other go through hard times, we live life with each other. And we say, that's who I want to be with. That's who I want to invest in because we are family. We are God's family. The next phrase in this passage complements this one so well as it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. A parallel way of saying this can be found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, which says this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is continuing the theme of putting others first in the body of Christ. Looking to others first in the body of Christ. Now, I like to use this verse whenever I do premarital counseling. And so, and talk about, you know, you don't want to make it a competition, but kind of you do. And so, outdoing one another in love. And I say, some days it's going to be easy to outdo them in doing honor because they maybe had a bad day and they're just not, it's just not coming. So, you're like, hey, that's easy. Other days it's going to be really hard. When they're honoring you, and you're like, man, how do I put their needs and their preferences above my own when they're doing it so much to me? And I made sure to clarify in the first service that with Kelly, it's probably only been three or four times that I've been able to outdo her in showing honor uh, because she's such a wonderful uh, counterpart to me and, and, and wife. Um, but that idea stands that we are to outdo one another in showing honor, putting others' preferences above our own. Preferring others above ourselves. Now, how often do we have opportunity to give this type of preference to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to this family? I would say we have a multitude of opportunities. One significant opportunity is that many churches across America have a strong conflict over because they're not able to put others' preferences above their own comes to the point of music. What music and worship songs do we sing? Now I'm sure in any given week that there's probably a song that may not be your favorite that we sing. It may not be exactly what you enjoy. But we need to look and say, are the words and the content of what happens in that song, is that worship to the Lord? Is it reflecting scripture? And I love our worship team. Because that is of value and importance to them to say, we want to make sure no matter the music style, that the priority is the words that are being sung to our Savior. Now, I have spent the last couple weeks, I drive my kids to school, I spent the last couple weeks just saying, hey, I'm going to share with you guys the music that I grew up with. And so the music that I enjoyed, some of the early Christian music from 20 or so years ago. And so I've been going and putting it in the, the, the CD player because I still have the old CDs in the car. And sometimes they're like, Dad, what is this stuff? Is this really music? Uh, and other times they're like, hey, bring out that funny music. I want to listen to that stuff. So there's some that I enjoy listening to and it kind of brings back memories. And there's others I'm like, why did I listen to this stuff? I don't even like this anymore. So preferences are very, can be very different. They can be wide in range, but it's an opportunity to say, I want to put down my preference and saying every song needs to be what I like. Everything needs to be about me, focused on me. But rather we can say, is this honoring to the Lord? 
yeah, let's, let's worship together with this. We had a very significant opportunity to give preference to one another when it's come to the various responses to COVID. I know for some people that's like a swear word now. And so because we're sick of it, we don't like it. But every single person in this room is different. Every single person has a different background, has a different situation, and has different convictions to the way that they respond. And we should be respectful of each other. Not focusing on, this is my preference, so this needs to be the preference for everyone. Or I'm going to step up and argue my preference and get very argumentative because you're wrong and I'm right. We have an opportunity to let love be genuine by outdoing one another and showing honor and putting their preferences above our own. Doesn't mean we all have to think the same. Doesn't mean we all need to do exactly the same thing. But we need to be aware of our brothers and sisters, be aware of their preferences, and seek to minister to them as if we're ministering directly to the Lord in them. A practical example that we've gone through recently has been rearranging classroom space for our life groups. One of my not-so-favorite projects that I've had to work here, but it's been out of necessity. And things have worked to where we needed to have uh, social distance seating for life groups during the very beginning uh, of, of 2020 there. So we're working through a lot of that. And then people start coming back and we're like, oh man, now we're getting all crunched with space and had to rearrange some things. And then as we're rearranging and, and trying to figure this out, we realize man, we're dropping the ball on ministering to certain ministries and certain people groups, so we needed to have a couple new life groups. But in order to do that, we didn't have the space to do that where they were needed. So I had to go to a couple life groups and say, hey, would it be possible for you to consider some changes? And I know a lot of those people that consider those changes are here because they moved to first service for their life group. One thing that stuck out to me about that process in significant ways was when someone said, Jeremy, my desire is that as many people as possible will hear the gospel being proclaimed when they enter this church building with this body. And if that means that I have to give up what's comfortable for me, I will do whatever it takes to make sure as many people are ministered to through Calvary Bible Church as possible. That spoke to me and said, that is a laying down of what our preferences are, of what our comfort is, of what we desire to minister to the body. I appreciate seeing that happen again and again in this body as we seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, we don't have time to dive deep into verses 11 through 13, but I do want to make a few quick comments on them. In verse 11, we see Paul communicating that if there is something worth doing for the Lord, do it with all of who you are. If there's a way that you can serve the Lord, step in with both feet. Don't do it half-hearted. Don't, don't only have that partial zeal that he's talking about. He says, be all in. If there's something worth doing for God, there's something worth doing with all of who you are. Verse 12 has three phrases that are related to one another. 
He starts with the instruction to rejoice in hope. And we all have something to rejoice in because we know what Christ has done for us on the cross. We know what's going to happen in the end. Even those of us that have had loved ones that have been lost, that have trusted in Christ as their Savior, we know where they are. They're with him right now. So we know what's going to happen. We have the opportunity to rejoice with hope because we know the Savior. Not only do we are able to rejoice in this hope because we know the future, but we can be, it's because of this hope that we can be patient and endure tribulation. That second phrase. We know hard times will be overcome because Christ is with us. Does it mean life will be easy? No. Does it mean Christ will be with us every step of the way? Yes, it does. So we can be patient and endure tribulation. We also know the power through which we can endure that tribulation is through prayer. And prayer is great power because that is the opportunity to speak to the Savior of the world, to the one that created everything, the one that sustains everything. And we have a direct line of access to him because he wants to hear from us. We want to be constant in prayer because we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to endure that tribulation, but we know the one who gives that strength. Verse 13 goes back to the theme of our response to the body of Christ. As Paul states, we are to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. Now, we look at this body, and we look at the body, and there's a lot of people here. We're all pretty spread out. Some people, I, I generally sit over here in the first service. So I know a lot of these people a lot better than here, and then a whole lot more than the people over here, just because you're far away. I don't see you as much. I don't know to talk to you as much. So we don't get to know each other that well to know what are these needs that we're supposed to be caring for each other? How are we supposed to be doing this? Uh, how are we supposed to be showing hospitality? So the way that we'd like to do that is through our life groups. That's where you get to know people. That's where people get to know you. They invest in you. You can invest in others. You get to know the needs of other people. You can invest in them. And all of a sudden, what looks like a bigger church gets broken down. And you're like, I have my community. I have people in this church that I know well, and they know me. They want the best for me. We keep each other accountable. We sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. We can be praying for each other in our life groups. We can be meeting others' needs. And we also hope hospitality extends beyond that life group as we live life together. At this point, Paul makes a transition from instruction to how we're supposed to respond specifically to the body of Christ to a more broad instruction on how we're to respond to all people. And that's the next point, our response to all people. This is found in verses 14 through 16, and I want to review that for us, and it says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Now, I want to pick out one phrase in that section and kind of filter a little bit of the rest through it as we look at our response to other people. And that phrase is found in verse 16, and it says, live in harmony with one another. Living in harmony with other people, living in harmony 
When we live in harmony, we bless people even when they persecute us. We bless people even when they persecute us. If we live in harmony with others, we empathize with them and are able to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We live in harmony when we aren't acting haughty but are associating even with those whom the world may look on as lowly. We live in harmony if we don't have a too high of a view of ourselves. We live in harmony when we don't look to take revenge in situations when we are hurt, and that's even looking to the part about our enemies. And even one more in the section about our enemies, we live in harmony when we seek to be peacemakers. That living in harmony all sounds good and fun on paper, but when we start to realize what it means for us practically, it takes on a whole new, different meaning. Those that slander us in the workplace so that they can get ahead are to be responded to with blessing and kindness. We are to act as friends to them, responding with that kindness. The person rejoicing because they got the, pro the promotion needs to be rejoiced with. Even if we were going for that same exact promotion and they got picked over us. I think of my kids and rejoicing with those who rejoice, living in harmony, rejoicing with those who rejoice when it's someone else's birthday. And it's like, how come they're getting all the presents and I'm not? The focus on living in harmony is a focus on others, and that's a key theme that we've been seeing so far. When the focus is off of ourselves, we can do so many of these things, or when we focus on ourselves, it clouds and gets in the way of these things that God is calling us to do. We are to treat the store clerk, the waiter, the gas station attendant with respect and dignity, even when something gets messed up. When it's someone else's fault even, we are to live in harmony. We as believers, we as followers of Christ are to make it a priority to live in harmony with others. As we think about living with harmony with others, a good question to ask ourselves with this is, is this interaction or is this word I'm about to speak or is this situation allowing me to have a more open door to sharing the gospel, or is it closing the door to share the gospel? At the end of that conversation or interaction, do you have the ability to say, can I share something with you that's very important and that to be the gospel? Did you just make a big deal about something happening at a restaurant and all of a sudden that waiter or waitress would say, what, you go to church? I have people that say they've never been in a church before in my life that just treated me better than you did. Is it closing the door to the gospel? Or is it making them say, you know, you, you cared about me in an unusual way. I'd love to share what's important with you. I'd love to share with whatever you're thinking because you, I messed up your order completely and you treated me so kind. You were patient with me. That's unusual. I don't see that very often. Yes, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Living in harmony with others means that we desire to not follow our own personal preferences that create a wall and prohibits us from 
Our love being genuine, going back to verse 9. When our preferences get in the way, we allow division to creep in and our interactions become about us rather than Christ living through us. Paul moves to probably the hardest part of this passage when he gives instructions on how we're to respond to those who would be considered enemies. This is verses 17 through 21, and I want to read this. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this passage, this section of it, it has a bunch of do nots and do's. And a lot of times they're contrasted or paired with each other. It's do not do this, but do this. Do not do this, but you're supposed to do this. And it really comes down to what is our role as it relates to our enemies or to the people that are in opposition to us. What is our role versus what is God's role? The problem comes in in two different ways. One, we reject the role that's given to us. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So that's a problem when we reject the role that we are supposed to have. The second problem is, is when we take on the role that we're not supposed to have. We see very clearly in this passage that God has a significant role in the relationship that we have with people that are opposed to us or seen as enemies. The problem is when we start to take God's role and say, I'm going to do that myself. And that's hard because that's what this world tells us we should be doing. Taking on that role ourselves. So verse 17 starts us off by saying, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Ultimately, we are not to retaliate. That's not our role. That's not what we are supposed to be doing. It's not our job to get even with someone else, even if they wronged us. Getting even is not what is honorable either in God's eyes. And it even talks about even in the eyes of man. It's not honorable for us to be get even. It's not our job. When, when we attempt to get even with an enemy, we're stepping outside of the role that's given to us. We're doing something different. Verse 18 gives us a role we're supposed to take, and it says, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our role that we're supposed to take on is to live at peace with anyone God places around us, even our enemies, even people that oppose us, even people that are out for us, want to take something from us, want to belittle us for one reason or another. It says, whenever, if at all possible, in the realm of what you can control, Live peaceably with all. Now, it puts some modifiers in there because obviously we can't force peace on everybody. 
We can do what we can, but there are some people that if we stand on our biblical convictions in a respectful manner, people will still not like it. Because God's word is so countercultural to what we experience today. So when we live the way God wants us to live, when we follow and have the values that God wants us to have, people aren't going to like it. We can still live respectfully with them. We can still uh, do all these other things that are talked about. But as far as it depends on us, we are to live peaceable with others. The passage clearly states that if it's, if it's a possibility, our default is to lean towards peace, to go towards peace, to pursue peace, to try to make a peaceful situation. Verse 19 reiterates the idea that we are to not get revenge. This is not our role. This is not to say that vengeance will not be had, but it's not going to be had at our hands. We can release to God any time that we've been wronged, any time someone's done something to us and say, God, I want to live at peace. I want to do what is right. I want to outdo them in honor. I want to put my preference to the sides, and I release this to you. Because it says that God is the one that's going to take vengeance. God is the one that's going to take care of all wrongs that are done. It is not us. Now, it may not come as fast as we would like it. It may not happen in the exact way in which we'd like to see it happen. But we can trust that our Savior is going to right all wrongs. He is going to be the one that takes vengeance. He is going to be the one that takes care of the sin that takes place. That's his role, not ours. We are drawn into that so much because it's like, I I can do this. If I just say or do this one thing, it'll take care of the situation. We can move on. But again, would that open or close a door to being a light and a witness for the Lord. God will not forget wrongs that have been done. He will rectify them. So let's leave that role to him and not take it on ourselves. Verse 20 gives us another role, and it's probably the most difficult one that we have here. It tells us that instead of taking vengeance for any wrongdoing that's done for us, instead we should do the opposite. We should have care. We should have love for those that are against us or considered our enemies. If they're hungry, we should give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, we should give them something to eat. We are to treat our enemies with kindness. Knowing and seeing their needs and saying, that's my role. I may be hurt right now. They may have done something that that was completely, had nothing to do with me, so I'm hurt. But I need to respond with kindness, saying, how can I serve them? How can I do good to them? As enemies do harm, and believers return with that goodness, they will experience God's judgment. 
I think we often overlook who would be our enemies. I believe there are many here that would have enemies at work, and we talk about work a lot because it's, it can be competitive in nature. Uh, and certain work atmospheres are harder than others, where people may be trying to get your job or your raise or, or pursue the same things that you're trying to get, so it's a competition. And a lot of times in a work situation, I look better when you look worse. So if I can make you look worse and I look better, then the boss will notice and see that. And that can be times where we see that there are enemies. All too often, we also have enemies that are based on those that have various political views that differ from what ours are. We find it easy to get into arguments. We find it easy to get combative because we see that the political policies they are pushing for are going to be bad for me from my perspective. So you are my enemy if you think differently from me. You are my enemy if we're not on the same page with this and we have an easy time talking about people behind their backs, making fun of certain politicians, doing things that God says, that is not your role. We are to be loving and kind, caring for their needs, even when it's difficult, even when they think differently than us. Sometimes we have enemies that are within family. Something happens, relationships are broken, we aren't talking to them. Things like this come up in a big way when we have Thanksgiving and there's families getting together. And there are times that we're bitter, we don't admit whatever fault we may have had in the situation or we're unwilling to try to help resolve the situation and so we continue to live year after year as enemies with extended family members. We are called to love, to care for, to provide for those that are our enemies. In each one of these situations, and a whole lot more, because there's a whole lot more situations where we have enemies, we cannot let our anger and our hurt control us. We need to know and understand that our role is to seek to be Christ to them, even to those that are considered enemies. We need to always remember what is my role and what is God's role. We need to continue to pursue our role and to trust that God's going to take care of his role as it relates to enemies. One of the greatest things that we can do for either other believers, for all people, for people that we come in contact with, or just kind of that general second category that we looked at, or even for our enemies, is pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for God's blessing for them. Pray that God would bring them to a saving knowledge of himself if they are not there yet. Pray for them. There are a few things that prayer does. There's a lot of things that prayer does. There's a few I want to mention right now. But a few things that prayer does is it changes our hearts towards them. 
as we pray blessing for those that we consider enemies, if we are genuine in those prayers, we start to see them in a different way. We start to see them as a soul that needs their Savior. If we pray for others, it changes our hearts. It also gives us opportunities. One thing in, in the Sunday evening prayer portion of the service that has been huge has been hearing people talk about, man, I've, I've lived by this neighbor for such a long time. And then we've consistently been praying for them here and outside of this service. We've been praying together for them. Man, they invited me over. I had an opportunity to talk to them. I've never seen, I've never had an opportunity because they're always inside. They're like, it's weird. All of a sudden, I mean, even with my wife and I, we're saying, we pray for our neighbors trying to get to know them. And all of a sudden, we're walking our dog and we're meeting like random neighbors. And they're like, hey, where do you live? Oh, we should, we, I haven't seen you around and have great conversations where we're able to have little gospel conversations with them. Praying for them changes us. Praying for them gives us opportunity to be able to care for them in this way. And we also want to be praying for their salvation, that God would change their hearts. If we start seeing our enemies as individuals who first and foremost and really only need to know the Savior as, as their God and Savior... It changes the way we see them. So I would encourage you, be praying for your fellow believers. Be praying for neighbors and just people that are around you, coworkers. Be praying for those that would be considered enemies. And I would encourage you, it's a great opportunity in the evening service to gather and to be praying with one another for these specific people. To say, they're on my heart, I want them to be on your heart too, and let's all pray that I have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Every time I read this passage, again, it's that slap in the face passage, where I realize, man, I have so far to go in the sanctification process. It draws me to my needs, then I say, Lord, I need you to change me. It's always a challenge to me when I read this passage, and I hope this passage has been as challenging to you as it always is time and again to me. Let's go ahead and pray as we close our service before we sing our final song. Lord, again, we are very thankful for multiple things. One, that you share with us how, as your children, you expect us to behave. How we can be great ambassadors for you. And God, not only do you tell us how to do it, but you give us your spirit as a help to do it. Because we can't do these things on our own. We look at this list and it is overwhelming. The things that we are called to do as your children, as believers in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we are thankful that you are the one that has the power to allow us to be able to do it, to work this through us. So God, help us to surrender our hearts. Help us to surrender and say, God, I need your help. As I reach out to people that are a part of this body with me, as I reach out to people that are just people I come in contact with at work, in my neighborhood, 
anybody, and then people especially that are considered my enemies. Lord, we love you very much. And we pray that you would continue to work on our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.